Yeah, we've had we've had a, 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 a tradition that uh, uh, I, I start off uh, with, a, with an opening explanation that's for the children, um, really kids. It's actually for the for your parents to help them sort of understand what we're talking about. But we say it's for the children, so you come on up. And if you didn't get a kids bulletin to um, use and look at after after we talk, when you go back and sit down again, there's more of them right over there on that front corner. Don't take one now, but when you go to sit down again you can grab one of those kids' bulletins, okay? It's better than your parents' bulletin. Yeah. All right, so take one of those. Now, I want you to imagine something for me, okay? I want you to imagine what if you were at this big swimming pool, okay? Think of it, it's a really big swimming pool. It's a swimming pool as big as this room, okay? It's huge. Wouldn't that be awesome? But like many swimming pools, it has a deep end, and one of your friends got into the deep end and they're over their head and they can't swim good enough. Now what could we do? We could throw them something. You can't reach them, but we could throw them something. What could we throw them? Maybe one of those music stands? Could we throw them a music stand? Would that help? Well, what if I have this? Could we throw them this? Would that help? It's kind of flat. I don't know if that would help much. What about, oh, what is this? What is this? What is this thing I have here? It's a floaty thingy. So what would that do? What might that do? It's, a, it's an air mattress, isn't it? So if we, if we threw them that, would that help? No. No? Why not? Why wouldn't it help? I float on air mattresses. It's big enough. Why wouldn't this help? It doesn't have any air. Well, maybe they could blow it up, you know, as they came up for air. You know, they could blow into it a couple times. This, without any air, probably wouldn't help. But let's go back to that thing I had before. It's got air now. It actually has air. Well, if this has air, would that help? It's not real big, but it might be just enough they could grab on it and they could float. What made the difference? Why... Would this not help before, but now we say, oh, that would actually help. What changed? What changed? It has, yeah? It has air. The air inside that it didn't have before changes everything. It makes all the difference. Now, I'm going to teach you a new word. The new word is pneuma. Can you say that? Pneuma. We're not going to spell it because it's spelled really weird. But the word is pneuma. And in the Bible, the word pneuma is used two ways. It means two different things. The word pneuma means air, like, like the air that's in here. It means air. Pneuma means air, okay? But you know what else pneuma means? Pneuma means spirit, like the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God himself, okay? And just like the air going into this pillow made all the difference in this pillow's being able to be used to save somebody else. The Spirit of God in us makes all the difference, okay? What I'm going to talk about this morning is the Spirit of God in us that Jesus promised that makes all the difference. There are many things that you think you could not do, but if you believe in Jesus, so his spirit lives in you. God's spirit is in you. He can do what you and I can't do. Okay? 
just like the pillow now is full of air, if you believe in Jesus, you will have the Spirit living in you to do what you can't do. Okay? Grab one of those bulletins and go on back to where you were sitting. I'm not going to take that mattress. It doesn't have any air. won't be any good. You know, I've been doing a lot of reflecting these last uh, 10 weeks. That's what, that's what um, pastors do when they're on sabbatical, right? They reflect. Uh, a lot of reading, a lot of considering, in a couple different directions. Myself and my own closeness with the Lord, and I ministry here, what I want to be, how I want God to use me. And what I think you need from me as a pastor. And I've been reflecting as well on our church and what our church ought to be, needs to be, for the sake of those who are around us. Who God makes me, how God uses me makes a difference here, how God uses all of us makes a difference all over. As you think about that, perhaps you've reflected along the way as well, now and again. Have you ever reflected in your own life, in your own Christian walk, and just how your relationship with the Lord is right now, and think, you know, I wish it was a little different I wish it was a little more vibrant. I wish there was a little more spirit in my spiritual life. Have you ever thought that? Have you, have you ever felt like, you know, it's not much fun when I'm living between the appearances of Jesus? You know, being back there in, in, the, in the first century when, when, when Jesus lived among his people and he was on the earth and he's doing these miracles and, and hearing from Jesus himself, those were the glory days. And then the first century church out of that, those were exciting times. But now we're here in the now and we're waiting for Jesus' promised return. But for now, it's just kind of grinding along. If you ever get tired of life feeling a little too much like that book of Ecclesiastes? emptiness, unfulfilling, knowing that it's supposed to be better than this and different than this, and yet how do I get there? Do you ever feel that way sometimes? This early, early in my sabbatical, I, I came across, I was reminded of a promise. I want to share that promise with you this morning. It's a, it's a, it's a promise that is very clearly stated, and yet one I think that we don't perhaps really understand. It's a promise that the Lord, in fact, the way he says it, he was very explicit about the sureness, about the certainty of this promise, the absolute certainty of this promise, and yet I think it's a promise that we might not actually believe. That's the promise that I want us to be talking about this morning. I want us to look into this morning. I want us to be reminded of it from God's word. And we're going to read then in the Gospel of John. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 17. Now as we read, there's a couple of promises in there. I want you to look for one in particular. There'll be perhaps some familiar ground along the way in that passage. But I want you to look for a promise, a promise that sounds too good to be true. A promise that sounds good, but you're not sure it's actually going to be real 
for you, okay? Watch for that promise as we read. I, I encourage you to bring your own Bibles. You, you've heard me say that before. That way, you, if there's something that really strikes you, you can, you can underline it even. You can mark on the side. You can add notes. But um, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there are Bibles in front of you in the pews. And if you're using one of those this morning, we will be on page uh, 763. John chapter 14. It says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you away to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. What Thomas says, the honest one in the bunch, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip says, Lord, show us then the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for so long, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. At least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has Faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Two promises in there. One of them in particular we're going to spend time on this morning. We're going to, we're going to understand one. We're going to practice the other. But before we do, it's... I think in this passage, it's helpful to take a step back and to gather the mood. You see, because in John chapter 14, there's disappointment in the air. There's discouragement about. The, the, uh, the mood is one of disappointment, discouragement, and failure. There's disappointment in the air. What do I mean by that? Well, in John chapter 12, the end of John chapter 12 has is concluded the public ministry of Jesus with the description of all of these multitudes who have not believed. The leadership is against him. Many of the people are against him. They have not believed. There's been a failure to believe. There's been a failure in John chapter 13 among his own followers among his disciples. Remember when they went to the upper room? They, they gathered around that table and somebody needed to serve. Somebody needed to wash the feet. Typically there would be a servant for that, but when there wasn't a servant, well, Jesus had already explained to them who would be the first in the kingdom. The one who will be first will be the servant of all. Nobody steps up. Nobody will serve. Nobody will wash feet. There's a failure to serve. We know that Jesus himself takes that role. And then he tells his disciples, you love one another as I have loved you. But perhaps they're discouraged in their 
failure to serve, the failure of others around them to believe. Perhaps there's, there's discouragement as well about a failure to stand with Jesus. In John chapter 13, that's when Judas, one of the 12, he goes out and he's betraying Jesus. Well now, but the other 11 are faithful, right? Peter declares it so. He says, Lord, no matter who would deny you, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, really, Peter? Before the end of this night, you are going to deny me three times. Not just once. Three times you're going to deny me. That hasn't happened yet, but it's hanging in the air. The failure even of his own followers. There's a failure to understand. We get that. Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. We don't know the way there. Lord, we don't know what you're talking about. We don't get it. Have you been there? Can you identify with this, with this uh, mood in the air? Are you sometimes discouraged that people who should believe, people you wished would believe, have not? Are you sometimes discouraged by your own failure to give of yourself? Sometimes we do it intentionally. Sometimes we make a decision. We see a need, but we're more concerned about our own needs. And the press of our own needs sometimes, sometimes debilitates us. It incapacitates us. It gets in the way of our being able to think beyond our own circumstances to others. Other times, we don't serve when we could. We don't exercise or step out in love. We don't take that wash basin and wash someone's feet not because we choose not to, but we just didn't notice. Just missed it. Do you have those times? And you're discouraged afterwards. You said, oh, I wish. I wish I'd seen that. I wish I'd heard that. I wish I'd caught that. I could have done something there. I could have spoken. I could have served. I could have helped. I could have met that need. And I missed it. It's disappointing. Discouraging. Maybe even you can live with these disciples. You can say, yeah, Lord, I'm confident you have a plan. I'm confident, God, you know what you're doing, but Lord, I don't have a clue what you're doing in this thing that's going on in life. Not knowing, not getting it, not understanding itself is discouraging. There's disappointment in the air. You know, that failure to understand, I want to take a sidetrack here because Jesus later on, he also talks about, he says, I am the way, I am the truth. That truth, that absolute, that's, that there is something solid, there's something real. So that understanding, how can we? You know, sometimes we, we uh, sort of uh, permit uh, a lack of stepping into our faith, of living out our Christian life because we, well, you know, I just don't understand my Bible that well. Sometimes understanding is based on doing. Sometimes you need to step into something in order to understand it. I heard a story this way. A guy goes into a deli. He orders a bowl of their, of their matzo ball soup, okay? He gets the soup. The waiter brings the soup to the table, and a little bit later, the, guy, the man's waving him over. The, the, uh, the waiter comes over, and uh, he says, is something wrong? Yes, taste the soup. Well, sir, is there something wrong with the soup? Just taste the soup. Well, sir, if there's something wrong with the soup, I can bring you another bowl of soup. Taste the soup. Sir, do you want me to go, go bring the chef out? Just 
taste the soup. And so finally, this waiter in exasperation is like, I'll taste the soup. Well, where's the spoon? The man says, aha. <laughs> the waiter didn't understand what was going on. He didn't understand until he stepped into doing what it was that he'd been asked to do. Sometimes understanding follows. Sometimes when we don't follow our understanding begins to get more murky and we don't see things as clearly as we ought to. I was rebuked on Friday. Oh, it was, it was, it was a good rebuke. It was a gentle rebuke. It wasn't one of those smug, I know better sort of rebukes. Don't you hate those? No, this was a very gentle rebuke. But I, I was telling the story about, I, I, I just related somehow how I had a friend who collected cans and bottles uh, at times and would take those over to Oregon because you got five cents, a, five cents a bottle back for them, right? And this person said, just as clear as could be, well, you're not supposed to do that because they didn't pay a deposit on bottles and cans that are from here in Oregon. And I went along a little while in the conversation just trying to rationalize and make excuses. Well, yeah, but it's okay, and it's still to make sure that they're recycled and all of those, and yet the Spirit nagged me about it. You know, I could rationalize through that, that why it would be okay for a person to do that, and yet they saw it so clear. I know some of you take bottles and cans over to Oregon and get five cents each for them, don't you? Sorry about that. Well, after, after being pressed by the Lord, and I googled it to make sure that's how you verify what god is saying you google it <laughs> and sure enough D oregon's department of environmental quality says no no you can't turn in cans from washington where you didn't pay a deposit and get the deposit back that's that's not what you're supposed to do it's easy for us to get cloudy in our thinking if we're not walking in the truth, sometimes then we don't see the truth. The disciples were at the point where they're saying we don't understand. How could we understand? How could we know better? There's this disappointment in the air. And in that environment, in that mindset, that's when the news is dropped on them. Jesus is leaving. What it was that made these last three years special, Jesus says, I'm going away. And they get confused. They missed it at first. What is he saying? And it makes it really clear. I am going away to the Father. And where I am going, you can't come. There's going to be a separation between them. There's going to be loss. There's going to be grief. They have been close. They've had this closeness to God and his kingdom in the presence of the Christ himself. And that is being taken away from them. You've heard that less is more. Well, this is one of those times where a loss is required for more. A loss is required for God's blessing, and they're going to be experiencing that loss. Jesus is going away. The disciples in John 14, they're, they're honest. Perhaps like when you and I argue with God in prayer. What God is doing, we don't like it. How could you go away? How could this be? We don't understand. Where are you going? Why can't we come? We do that. Jesus' words in response, they mean more than we grasp. He says, well, he responds to three questions. Is there a way back for us to God? Is there a way for us to have relationship with God? He says, yes, I am the way. I am the way back to God. That's going to be important. Hang on to that. 
He says, is there, question number two that most people deal with, is there anything solid? Is there anything real? Is there anything absolute? And Jesus says, I am the truth. I am the truth. I am the absolute. The Father's presence in me, seeing me, you see the Father. Knowing me, you know the Father. God can be known. And God is absolute. We shy away from absolutes because absolutes imply accountability. But when we shy away from absolutes because absolutes imply accountability, all of our thinking begins then to get fuzzy. This is why I described the cans. Little decisions like that are important for us because of the bigger implications and the own clarity of our mind. When bigger things that should be clear become fuzzy, you have things like what is marriage being put on the ballot here in our state in November. Because something that used to be so obvious for every society that existed on this planet is now up for grabs. We've denied the truth, and so we've denied the concept of absolutes, and so we've got nowhere left to stand. We don't know anything for sure. Is anything really true? Jesus says, yes, there is. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And this is perhaps the one that's the most ambiguous for us, and I think it's the one that's the most important for us this morning. We protect life. Life is important to us. We're grieved when we hear this morning that a sister of ours, earlier than we would have expected, has already departed from us and is with the Lord. She has died. Life is important. It's in this life that we have relationship, that we can know one another. We protect life. And because life is important, because life is valued, and and in our lives we are made in the image of God, we value life. That's what makes makes the issue of abortion so critical, and and because of that, adoption. That's what makes the whole health care debate important and matter, because our lives matter. The lives of those around us matter. And yet... Jesus, when he speaks of life, he says, I am the life, but he goes on to define that life differently. He takes it away from the mere physical existence, and he defines that life as the life of the Father being in him. His words mattered, the words that he said, not merely because he was Jesus, but because the words that he spoke were the words of his Father who was in him. He said, I am in my Father, and my Father is in me. That's the essence of life. The works that I do, these works that I do, he said, are the works of my my Father who is in me. And so the one who has seen me has seen the Father, because they are God's words, they are God's works that the Father empowered was in the midst of all that he said and all that he did. And that's what made Jesus different. Jesus raises the stakes then. Remember when Jesus opened his ministry, he he, he gave a, 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 a bold word there in the synagogue He stood there before all these rabbis and everybody else and he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. To proclaim deliverance to the captives. Freedom. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to do that. 
We think of Jesus and his life and his miracles because, well, he's God in the flesh. Of course he can do those things. Jesus himself said, no, I do these things by my relationship with my Father, who is God, and because my Father is in me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's why I say the things I say. That's why I do the things I do. Now, where it gets exciting is that which is true of Jesus is also true for you and I who believe in him. Did you catch that promise? Did you catch that promise that that as we read through, just as he's talking about, I am in the Father, the Father living in me, who is doing his works, verse 10. Verse 12, he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. Whoever has faith in me will do what I have been doing. Whoever has faith in me will do, he says, even greater things things despite the fact that there's discouragement in the air despite the fact that jesus is going away he says even after i have gone away you who believe in me will do even greater things than these do you believe that do you believe that really that's quite a stretch isn't it what does that promise mean what could it mean We need to explain that, first of all, because we're not sure we understand it, then we're not sure if we believe it, then we're not sure what we would do about it. Do we understand it? Who does he mean? Who's going to do those greater works? Is it just the the 12, the disciples? Well, actually, there's only 11 of them still there. Is it just those disciples that are going to do those greater things? Because we know they did some pretty fantastic things, right? Jesus widens it beyond that, doesn't he? He says, whoever believes in me, How many of you here today does that apply to? How many of you here today would say, yes, I believe in him, so this somehow must apply to me, not just them? Okay? Why is it true? He says, this is true. You will do greater works than these because I go to the Father. It's one of the most important phrases in this passage. Because I go to the Father, you will do greater things. What does that mean? Sometimes we think it means this. Well, you know, there's some sort of rule in the Trinity. We don't really understand it, but it seems to be a God thing that there only can be one of them on earth at a time. So if the Spirit's going to come and do his thing, well, Jesus has to go away first because there's just not room on earth for more than one of the Godhead at one time. That's just silly, isn't it? That's ridiculous. That's, that's, sorry. When Jesus says, I am going, when Jesus says, I go to the Father, what does he mean? He means the cross. He's already told them that that he's going to be killed. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be crucified. He's going to die. And then on the third day, he's going to rise again. When he says, I go to the Father, he's going to the Father by means of the cross. Okay? First of all, what difference did that make? That made all the difference. That's how he was the way. That's how Jesus was the way that there is reconciliation with God. There is now no longer nothing between me and my Creator. I am free to come to Him. Not only that, my Creator is free to come to me. His condemnation no longer is in the way. Now His Spirit is free to come close and even to come within. Jesus said, the Spirit Spirit, I am going to send you another like me helper. Some translations say counselor. 
Let's not get that confused with the people over at Charis. Some translations say comforter. That's comfortable, but God often isn't so comfortable. I will send you a helper. That's a good word because he enables. He enables us to do, like the air in that pillow, he enables us to do that which we would be useless for on our own. But when the Spirit comes, and the Spirit, this is what I want you to get, the Spirit can come because Jesus went. Not just that he went somewhere, but because he went to death for you and I, our guilt is paid, our guilt is put away, it is done. And now God's love is free to embrace me, his presence is free to draw near. You draw near to God and what? He draws near to you. Think of it. Because of Jesus' death, the spirit of the living God is now free to come and to indwell us in the same kind of unhindered way that Jesus would say, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord has anointed me. The Spirit of the Lord is not merely upon you. The Spirit of the Lord, if you believe in Jesus, that's who the promise is for, if you believe in Jesus, then greater things than these you will do because he went to the Father so that nothing would be in the way. Through his death, the Spirit of the living God comes to us. Verse 16, I will send you another helper who will be with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot accept because it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him. He lives with you. He will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. God himself has sent his presence not only to be close by, but to indwell, to give life to us in a new way that enables us to be used for his work of rescue, for his greatest works that we were useless for on our own without the Spirit's coming. That's the point. That's the promise. Is that really true, though? You think of even the disciples. Did that happen? Did they experience greater works than that which Jesus did? No, turn over to Pentecost. After, in Acts chapter 2, after the coming of the Spirit, in that visible manifestation. And folks, Peter, Peter preaches, Peter stands up and he preaches a sermon. But you know what? He wasn't in his study the night before, you know, working that out, thinking up just the right illustrations and, okay, what passages do I cross-reference here and how do I put this together that they'll get it? <laughs> Good luck with that. Peter didn't do that. Peter simply stood up in the midst of a circumstance and he spoke what he knew that made sense out of what was happening. He just said, okay, I will speak up here. Now, interesting thing, that's a very different Peter, isn't it? The coward by the campfire becomes the preacher of Pentecost. What makes the difference? The coming of the Holy Spirit. And what happened out of that? 3,000 souls were added to the church. You know, there's not a record like that. There's not a record like that of a response to Jesus' ministry. Does it bother you when I say that? You think, come on, nobody taught like Jesus did. That might be true. But there wasn't any record of that kind of salvation response to Jesus' preaching ever. Sure, 5,000 came and were fed. But when there were no more sandwiches there were no more people. They weren't there because they responded to him. 
In fact, when he began to speak to them about his own death for them, that's when they split. Jesus brings it right back up with the Spirit. After the work of the gospel has been finished by Jesus, the gospel has been completed, now it's there to be believed, and by the Spirit it is proclaimed and is believed. Let's take Peter's second message. Okay? This one's just like your experiences. Why? They're just walking along. And there's this guy. And he's needing some money. And Peter says, well, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have. And he proclaims the risen Christ to this man. And, you, and out of that, he believes. Others see. They see the change in him, and they believe. And again, the, the, the gospel goes wild. In that first century, the gospel goes from Ethiopia to Antioch. It goes on to India and as far as Iran, and it goes all over the empire. Nobody, politically speaking, was worried about some man named Jesus outside of Judea during his lifetime. After his death, by the indwelling spirit in those who believe, they turned the world upside down. Folks, it's true. Jesus said it. Greater things than even he did, greater works than he did, will be done by those who believe in him. Because I go to the Father. And because he went to the Father, our guilt is gone. God draws near. His spirit indwells, empowers us in ways that were never possible before. How do I live in that? Is it making the blind see? We start having some, some, some miracle services and the lame are going to walk and the blind are going to see and maybe there will be some dead raising going on. Well, Jesus raised a couple of people from the dead. But since then, all through the ages, he has been giving not temporary life like he did to Lazarus, but through people just like you, he has been giving eternal life to everyone that believes. You know, when you trace this filling of the Spirit in those who believe through the book of Acts over and over and over again, you see when the Spirit fills somebody, what comes next is a speaking of the good news of Jesus our Savior. That's what comes next. And that's what God uses to do His greatest work. There is no greater work than the eternal life that is given because of Jesus Christ's death for us. This morning, my message is simply this. It's simply this, that based on Jesus' fully redeeming death, based on Jesus' death for us, and by the power of the indwelling Spirit, you and I can be active participants in God's greatest work. That you will do, if you believe in Jesus, if you are indwelled by His Spirit, and if His Spirit in you then speaks the words of God's good news to others, you will participate in even greater works than Jesus Himself did. He's ordained it that way. He's determined that that privilege would not merely be Jesus's in the first century and whenever He returns, but it would be yours and mine today. Do you believe it? Would God use you? Even with anyone? With just one, would God use you? I want to give you a challenge this morning. And it's not to do anything, really. 
You've got a spot inside your bulletin. If you had found the spot with the, with the sermon notes, you have some lines in there. I want you to think of somebody, somebody that you love, somebody that you care about, somebody that you want to, to, to see believe in Christ. I want you to write their name down. I want you to begin praying for them. You say, I'm already praying for them. That's good. Write their name down. Go ahead. We'll wait. Yeah, some of you are moving to the pen now. Okay, that's right. We'll wait. Come on, there must be somebody that you like, somebody that you care about, and if you, as a Christian, don't know any more unsaved people around you, shame on you. Go out and meet some. Let's find some. They're, they're all over the show here. Who do you care about? And we all know that person. That, that name came to mind very easily. I'm, I'm being facetious. That person that you love and care about, write their name down. What about a person that you don't think would, will be saved? This person, maybe you know, or maybe it's kind of a kind of person that they're not going to believe. They're probably not going to be saved. Write a name down or something that describes them. I want you to start praying for something that's a little more challenging. I want you to start praying for that person that you don't think will believe. Okay? Now let's have some fun. I want you to start praying. I want you to think of somebody that you really don't care if they believe. You'd just assume they didn't believe because you don't get along with them here. You probably wouldn't get along with them there. You'd just assume they didn't know. You know, the, the, the conversations you've had with them haven't been about the gospel. It's, 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 it's probably more something on the line of that person that you don't care about their destiny. Their, the conversations you've had from them have been very limited unless it was to tell them to go to, well, there's a lyric of a song that expresses it. It says that greater things are yet to come. Greater things are still to be done in this city. Greater things are still to be done in this church. Greater things are still to be done by you who believe. Do you believe that? Will you pray for those people? Perhaps if you want to, take your white communication card Put those names there. Say, just say, join me in praying for these. And I will. Other leaders of the church will. Let's begin asking for God to do something beyond what we might think he would do because he himself said greater things. Would you pray with me? Father, this is what we want. And we want it, Father, because you want it. We want it. We dare to ask for it because you have promised even greater things that you will do through those who believe. Well, we wouldn't dare to compare ourselves with Jesus, but we would dare to present ourselves to you. Father, would you use our hands? Would you use our lips? Father, would you give courage in our hearts would you give an awareness in our minds that we would open our eyes and see an opportunity and take hold of it? Speak up in a circumstance. But Father, first of all, right now, we ask you for these. 
And we ask it based on your promise. In Jesus' name. And all who believe said, Amen.